The armor, first and foremost, is understanding and comprehending our position, what God has done for us in Christ. And then only secondarily, the armor is about appropriating and applying that to the practice of our lives. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Are you prepared to fight back against your greatest enemy? Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom concludes our current series with part 16 of Learning to Use God's Armor. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 describes the spiritual battle that all true believers in Jesus Christ will face. But to fight Satan and his schemes, you need armor. And yet the believer's armor is not what you are or what you do. It's understanding and applying what God has done in Christ for you. You'll only grow as a believer and be shielded from Satan's attacks in your life as you deepen in your understanding of what God has done in Jesus Christ for you. That is the armor. It is Christ and it is His work properly understood and properly applied. Let's join our teacher for more now on The Word Unleashed. Start with that expression, full armor. That's a little misleading in the English because it implies that there's a Greek word translated full and there's an English word, or excuse me, there's a Greek word translated armor. But in reality, the English words full armor translate only one Greek word. It's the word from which we get a very rare English word, panoply. You know, we sing a hymn sometimes, an old hymn about putting on the panoply of God. You ever wonder what that was? It's this word. It simply refers to the complete armor of a heavily armed soldier. It's the package of armor that a soldier wears. The whole ensemble, the whole package we are commanded to put on or take up the panoply, the complete armor, the full armor. But notice that this complete package of body armor is called the armor of God. The armor of God. What does that mean? Now this is not an idle curiosity. Understanding this what the armor of God means is absolutely crucial to Paul's point. And therefore, understanding what Paul means by God's armor is crucial to withstanding Satan's tactics in our lives. What does it mean? The armor of God. Well, there are two implications in that expression, that genitive. One is that God is the source of the armor. It's the armor of God in the sense that it originates with God and it is given to us as a gift. It is the armor that God supplies to believers to protect them. Whatever this armor is, it comes to us from God. And this is so important because the stress here is not on the need to take the complete armor. You know, our English might mislead us when you say full armor. You can think that the stress Paul is saying is, you know, make sure you don't leave one piece off. And of course, that is implied. We're to put on all of this armor. But that's not the stress. 
The stress of this passage is that we need the armor that God supplies. We cannot stand against the devil and his schemes on our own. We need armor from outside of us. We need God's armor, the armor God gives us. Not our own puny defenses, but God's. Not our own strength, but Christ's. We need the armor of God. We need armor that God supplies us. Because what I have will not do. It will not allow me to resist the tactics of Satan in my life. So God is its source. But there's a second implication here of this expression, armor of God. Not only does it mean God is the source of it, but it means God is the real owner of this armor. Let me put it like this. It is the armor that God himself wears. It's God's own personal armor. Now, as we observed, much of the description of the armor has been either directly quoted from the Old Testament or clearly paraphrased from an Old Testament passage. And if you trace those capitalized phrases there in verses 14 to 17 back to the Old Testament, all of them come from Isaiah. And if you look at them in Isaiah, you will discover that they all describe armor that a person called the servant of the Lord wears. Now you tell me, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, if you're familiar with Isaiah at all, you know who the servant of the Lord is in Isaiah. It's none other than whom? Our Lord Jesus Christ. In each context, it is a reference to the Messiah. In other words, it's a reference to our Lord Jesus Christ. He is described in Isaiah as this mighty warrior fighting to bring salvation to his people. Let me show you this. Go back to Isaiah, and let me show you each of these in its context. Isaiah chapter 11. In Isaiah 11, Isaiah begins to talk about the fact that out of a, what looks like a decimated Israel in the captivity, looks like they've been cut off like a tree and just a stump left, out of that stump, verse 1 of chapter 11, a shoot will spring up from the stem of Jesse and a branch from its roots. It's like you walk by and you see this massive oak tree that's been cut down. It's all gone. But out of the root nearby is a little shoot, the promise of future. That's the Messiah. The Lord is the righteous branch. Verse 2, he's described as possessing the Spirit of God, empowered by the Spirit of God. Verse 3, he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. In other words, he doesn't need to be informed. He has this omniscience. He's able to know without being told, without having the evidence presented. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Now watch verse 5. Also, righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. When we get to the, the, the belt, the belt of truth, we'll talk about this verse a little more. But it's taken from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of this verse, verse 5. And it's about the Messiah. It's about His armor. Now turn over to Isaiah 52 and you'll see the next piece. Isaiah 52 and verse 6. 
Isaiah has just been lamenting that God's people have been destroyed, oppressed, captured, both physically and spiritually enslaved. Therefore, verse 6, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, I am the one who is speaking. Here I am. Here's a reference to Messiah. When Messiah comes, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him, singular, Messiah, who brings good news. That is the gospel. Paul quotes this about the gospel. He announces peace with God. The Messiah brings good news of happiness. He announces salvation. He says to Zion, your God reigns. Verse 10, the Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. This is the message of the Messiah. And in verse 7, that's the verse that Paul borrows to talk about our feet being shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. He's borrowing from the Septuagint translation of verse 7. It's about the Messiah's armor. And notice down in verse 13, he continues to talk about the Messiah. And of course, when you get to chapter 53, that's really where you get to the heart of his mission, where he will die as a substitute for his people to bring salvation. One other passage. Turn over to chapter 59. And notice verse 15, the middle of the verse. Now the Lord saw, that, it, and it was displeasing in his sight, that there was no justice. He saw there was no man, was astonished that there was no one to intercede, so God takes the initiative. His own arm brought salvation to him, and his righteousness upheld him. This is again the Messiah, verse 17. He put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. In other words, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, takes the initiative to save his people. And then the rest of the verse, he'll also deal with his enemies. But what I want you to see is that these references in Isaiah picture our Lord as a warrior dressed for battle as he goes forth to save, to rescue his people. And so the armor which we are encouraged to put on in the spiritual warfare in which we're engaged is our own Lord's armor. It's the armor the Messiah has worn, and He's now provided it for His people as they engage in battle. Now go back to Ephesians 6. Now you understand why it made sense for Paul to begin this section about the armor with the expression in verse 10, be strengthened in the Lord and with the power of His might, because the armor that we're putting on is His armor. His own personal armor. So clearly then, when Paul refers to this armor as being the armor of God, he means not only that it comes to God from us, that it's a gift of God to us, but it is Jesus Christ's own personal armor. It is the armor of God, the second person of the Trinity. And understand here that when it talks about Jesus putting on armor, it's not like he puts on a piece of brass or metal. That's not what it's describing. It's a metaphor. The armor here are the qualities, are virtues that are true about him. These pieces of armor are like a metaphor for the qualities 
that describe him. He is truth. He is righteousness. He is the good news. He is the only legitimate object of faith. He is our salvation. He is the Word of God. So when we put on the armor that describes our Lord, we are in reality putting on the qualities or virtues that are true of Him. So there are four general observations so far. There is an intentional order. The metaphor is flexible, so don't press all the details. Paul's illustration of the armor comes from two sources, not only the Roman soldiers around him, but the Old Testament. And number four, it is the armor of God. He is the source of it, and it is Jesus Christ's own personal armor. Now, the fifth observation that we need to make, we must make, is about the meaning of these pieces of armor. The meaning of the armor must be consistent with the context of Ephesians. Whatever the armor means, it must be consistent with the context of of Ephesians. That means that whatever the armor is referring to, whatever the individual pieces are referring to, it must be consistent with being strengthened with Christ and His might. Verse 10. It can't be our own resources. It must be able to protect us from the tactics of the devil. Verse 11. From falsehood and error, from fear and intimidation, from personal temptation. And it must be able to protect us from supernatural forces, verse 12. With all of that in mind, what exactly is this armor that protects us from Satan's tactics? I have read, in preparation for studying this passage and teaching you, reams of commentaries, theological journal articles, and various books on this passage. Because I have to tell you honestly that I, I have always known this passage to be important, and I've had some idea of what it means, but I, I don't really feel like I've ever gotten to the bottom of it myself. And so I've launched a journey of my own here to get there. And as I've read and studied, it seems to me that you can boil all of the views, and there are many of them, down to really two ways to interpret this text. Two ways to interpret this text. The first way that many interpret this text is to say this armor is subjective, internal qualities in us. Subjective, internal qualities in us. Qualities that we have to grow and develop, and that becomes our armor. Those who take this view would interpret the various pieces of armor like this. They would say, in verse 14, truth means truthfulness. You need to be truthful. You need to be sincere. And that'll be an armor against, the, against Satan. Righteousness. That means you need to be personally righteous. You need to have a life that is characterized by righteous deeds. Verse 15, the preparation of the gospel of peace. They would say that you have to have a constant readiness and eagerness to share the gospel with others. Verse 16, faith. You need this internal confidence in God. Verse 17, salvation. You need an internal hope of future deliverance. Verse 17, the sword of the Spirit. This is an internal use of the Scripture. But I, I'm not convinced that these internal qualities are what Paul means. In fact, I'm convinced they cannot be what he means. It cannot be subjective internal qualities in me. Why? 
because trusting in my own virtues is utterly inconsistent with the context of the passage. What am I told in verse 10? Be strengthened with Christ and His might. Verse 11, my own virtues are not able to protect me from the tactics of the devil. If you doubt that, read the Bible. Look at men and women far more righteous than we are whose righteousness was not able to protect them from Satan's tactics. Read spiritual biographies of Christians down through the centuries, and you will find very righteous people whose righteousness, whose internal qualities and virtues were not a defense. They cannot stand up against our spiritual, supernatural enemy. So there's a second way to interpret this armor. Not as subjective internal qualities in us, but number two, as objective external truths about God or acts of God. Objective external truths about God or acts of God that I have to understand and apply. That's the armor. This view of the armor, I think, best fits with the overall context of Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. Because Paul uses this whole armor metaphor as the conclusion to his book. He's bringing his letter to a close, and this is to wrap it all up. This is to be a fitting conclusion to all that he's taught us. So he comes back to the same themes that we've seen before in this book. He comes back to truth and righteousness, the peace the gospel brings, the importance of faith, the work of God in salvation, the place and priority of the Word of God in the life of the Christian. But not only does Paul come back to some of the same themes, but even in this conclusion, this armor metaphor takes the same approach. You remember how the book of Ephesians is structured? Chapters 1 through 3, not one command except remember. It's all about our position in Christ. It's all about what God has done that we must understand and apply what God has done in Christ through the gospel. And chapters 4 through 6 are about our practice. We must appropriate and apply the realities of our position. Verse 1 of chapter 4, therefore begins, walk worthy of your new position in Christ. See, the armor that Paul is describing then here at the end of his book that sort of wraps it all together does both. The armor first and foremost, listen carefully, the armor first and foremost is understanding, meditating on, and comprehending our position, what God has done for us in Christ. And then only secondarily, the armor is about appropriating and applying that to the practice of our lives. This view best fits the immediate context. We're strengthened by Christ's strength, not our own. The truths about God are the gifts of God that we must understand and apply. It fits the context of the book. Understand your position, what God has done for you in Christ, and only then can you walk worthy of it. How do we interpret the individual pieces of armor? Let me give you just a thumbnail, and we'll fill this out in the coming weeks. Verse 14, we're to put on truth. That means we must understand the whole great sweeping truth of redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Righteousness. We must understand 
the imputed righteousness that is ours in justification. Verse 15, the preparation of the gospel of peace, our soul's stability, the shoes on our feet, the, soul, the stability of our Christian lives comes from the knowledge of the peace with God that we have gained through the gospel. Verse 16, faith. We must take cover. We must shield ourselves under the promises of God to us in Christ. Salvation. We must fully appropriate the reality that we have been rescued from the penalty of sin. We are being rescued from the power of sin, and we will be rescued from the presence of sin. The sword of the Spirit in verse 17, we find our confidence and defense in specific propositional statements God has made to us in His Word. And understand this, each of those is a gift of Christ to us. He is truth, and He teaches us the truth. He is righteous, and He gives us righteousness. He is our peace, and He brings the good news of peace with God. He is faithful and true, and therefore it makes sense for us to trust in Him, and He gives us the faith to trust in Him. He is the Savior, and He rescues us from the wrath to come. He is the Word of God, and He helps us find protection in its promises. The armor is Jesus Christ. In fact, look over at Romans chapter 13. Paul makes this point. In this context, he's really dealing with the virtues side of the armor. But notice what he says as he concludes this chapter. Verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in the context of armor. Notice back in verse 12, put on the armor of light. What is the armor? Ultimately, the armor is the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. In other words, he's saying the armor that guards us, the armor that protects us, is ultimately Christ Himself. And when we put on Christ, it ultimately will express itself in our living. But that's not the main point. The main point is, it is Christ Himself we put on. By the way, Augustine, great church father, was saved through hearing that verse and understanding it. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's your only hope. Listen, let me summarize it like this. Don't miss the big point Paul is making here. The believer's armor is not what we are or do. The believer's armor is not what we are or what we do. It's understanding and applying what God has done in Christ and in the gospel. You will only grow as a believer. You will only be shielded from Satan's attacks in your life as you deepen in your understanding of what God has done in Jesus Christ for you. That is the armor. It's Christ. And it's His work, properly understood and properly applied. Let's pray together.
That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed. And that concludes our current series titled Learning to Use God's Armor. Join us next time for a brand new series as Tom once again takes us to God's Word. But Tom, before we end our time today, would you share a closing thought with us? You know, friend, I hope you've seen through this series that we are locked in a spiritual war. That war is fought in the minds of men and women, in your mind and mine. It's a war of ideas. It's a war between those those ideas that come from Satan himself, false religion, false theology, bad teaching, and the truth of the gospel, the truth of God's word. And the way that we fight in this war is putting on the armor that is the truth in the gospel. And by doing so, we guard our hearts and minds from the onslaught of Satan and his attack. And the gospel itself, the truth of God contained in the gospel, becomes the armor that preserves our souls until the day we are able to lay our weapons down and to bow at the feet of our great general, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thanks, Tom. And friend, does the Bible speak about the government and structure of the church? In his book, A Biblical Case for Elder Rule, Tom Pennington presents in-depth evidence from Scripture to show that God intends every local church to be governed by a plurality of godly men. In an age where a biblical ecclesiology is often neglected, it is critical to recapture what the Bible teaches about the structure of the church. Purchase your copy of Tom's book, A Biblical Case for Elder Rule, today at thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory explaining God's truth.